Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship Sunday Afternoon Bible Study. Today we're going to be taking a look at the Epistle of Jude and especially at the man Enoch. We're going to begin reading in Jude, verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed, about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally, as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feast of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, I'll stop reading there. It does continue on, but I'll stop reading in verse 15. And Jude is a very interesting epistle. Of course, it's the word of God as he moved Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to write these things. And much of it, much of this one chapter book deals with the ungodly. It deals with the uh, the people that believe not, as it says back in verse five, the um, the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroy them that believe not, and that would uh, fit the timeline of after Israel came out of Egypt and during their forty year wilderness sojourn, they. Um, were destroyed. And, and God does say that everyone who murmured and 
and uh, complain that their carcasses fell in the wilderness and they were not able to enter into the promised land because they believed not. And we read that also in Hebrews. Jude is similar to Second Peter chapter 2, another chapter where God goes into detail speaking of the ungodly. Now here, the, the ones that he's talking about, they believe not. So they are those people that identify with the word of God or identify with the gospel. They've heard it. And yes, it could be people in the church, but also these people came out of Egypt and were uh, under the hot sun during that wilderness sojourn. And when God speaks of that 40-year period, since that occurred after all Israel came out of Egypt, it relates spiritually to the time when God saves all of his elect coming out of spiritual captivity. And, and that happened on May 21, 2011. It was as though... All of God's people came out of Egypt at that time because Egypt typifies the kingdom of Satan and being in bondage to sin and Satan. But now all the elect are delivered. They're all freed. And yet they they do not immediately enter into the promised land. What have we learned from the Bible? That Judgment Day, in all likelihood, is a prolonged period of time of 1,600 days, which breaks down to 40 times 40. So after May 21, 2011, all of the elect come forth, but with them um, there there are many that are not saved, and, and yet you can't tell them apart because they were all outside the church. They all carried signs, and or, or many of them carried signs, and and wore the same T-shirts and handed out the same tracts and said the same things. So God puts them all to the test. All are put into the fire of the day of the wrath of God, and, and the fire will declare it. The fire will reveal who is gold, silver, precious stones, and who is wood, hay, stubble. And, and one characteristic of uh, these people who believe not is they speak evil of things they do not understand. Take a look at verse uh, 10 of Jude. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. Now the uh, Greek word that is translated as speak evil is the same Greek word, it's Strong's number 987, that is translated as blaspheme. That's what to blaspheme means. Or blasphemy means to speak evil of. And and so these men, they speak evil. They blaspheme those things which they know not. 
but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. That is, these men are unsaved. They've never been born again. They've never received a, a new heart or mind or soul. And therefore they have a natural mind. They have their old mind. They have their old heart. And, and that's a natural heart. And uh, as it says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But now notice what it says in verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. God's methodology is compare spiritual with spiritual, scripture with scripture, and the Holy Spirit teaches. That's how God instructs his people. But this methodology, this um, hermeneutic, which is the only proper hermeneutic to come to truth, is rejected by the natural man as a matter of fact, he cannot receive it because they're spiritually discerned. There, There's that word, discern. Remember that uh, very familiar verse in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8 and verse 5? A wise man's heart discerneth time and judgment. The wise discern time and judgment. That's why Daniel says in Daniel 12, verse 10, concerning the time when the previous verse spoke of things sealed until the time of the end. And then verse 10 tells us, The wise will understand, but none of the wicked will understand. Why not? Because in order to discern, in order to understand, you have to follow the Bible's proper method. It's hermeneutic, which is scripture with scripture, harmonizing all conclusions, and then the Holy Spirit teaches. And and here is a spiritual teaching that comes from the Bible that, that is derived from the Bible itself when we follow this uh, system that God has put in place for coming to truth. And that whole method is rejected. It, it is dismissed. You're taking things out of context. Um, they, they don't see it nor discern it. They cannot because it is spiritually discerned. They will never understand the end of the church age. They will never understand Christ slain at the foundation of the world. They will never understand a spiritual judgment occurring on the church or on the world. 
May 21, 2011. They will not understand 1,600 days because it said furlongs. And don't you understand? Furlongs are not days. They will insist. They, they cannot understand things that are spiritually discerned. And when they do not understand, it says in Jude, when these evil men do not understand, they speak evil of those things which they know not. It's natural to them. Uh, what are you talking about? No more salvation. And, and uh, I tell you, they can really lash you with their tongue and the bitterness can flow forth and uh, as they revile, they think the the individual who comes up with such an evil idea that God would stop saving people. Well, uh, who wrote Luke 13 and verse 25 and following that once the master of the house has risen up and is shut to the door, then people come crying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And and he will respond and say, uh, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Who wrote that? God wrote that. Who wrote uh, Luke 16, where the rich man is in hell, in the grave, and he desires a drop of water, and the response of God is that it's not possible. There's a great gulf fixed between us and you, and, and they which would pass from hence to you cannot, and neither can you pass from where you are. And and in just so many places, God insists the sun goes dark, the water dries up, the door is shut. Who wrote these things? God wrote them. God is the one insistent that in the day of judgment, there is no more salvation. And, and this comes from the Bible. Yes, here a little, there a little, scripture with scripture, and we have an end time doctrine. We have timelines that tell us when these doctrines uh, take effect uh, concerning when the church age was in place, when the church age ended, when the great tribulation began, when the great tribulation concluded, when judgment day started. It is all information spiritually discern from the Bible. The genealogies, the the, the way that God um, used uh, feast days in, in his times and seasons, and the way that all these things fit so very well, so very perfectly, like pieces of a puzzle. When the church age began on the day of Pentecost and concluded the day before Pentecost, in 1988, and then 2300 evening mornings takes us from that point to September 7th, 1994, which would be the first day of the Hebrew seventh month and the time in a Jubilee year when the, the trumpet would be blown announcing the Jubilee in 1994 happened to be a Jubilee period. And so the latter rain period began 
in which God set the captives free, that great multitude of his elect, and and so on. Everything falls into place, including the 7,000-year timeline from the day God shut the door in, in uh, the time of Noah, when the flood began on the 17th day of the second month, 7,000 years later to May 21, 2011, the 8400th day of the Great Tribulation, the exact 23rd year, and it had the underlying day of 217 in the Hebrew calendar, and that's when God shut the door of heaven and Judgment Day began. Well, you can tell the people these things. You can give them many supporting Bible verses, and and it just fits so well. And And God's people have ears to hear. God's people know, have have been taught by God the proper methodology, and when they hear things that go together and harmonize very well and fit the Bible, God's people are listening, checking it out, and what they're thinking, well, how does this verse, and then they go off in that direction to see if that verse fits. And once it does, they're further convinced because of further support for the teaching. And it's a growing process. They begin to understand more and more. And uh, But the ungodly are not so. The natural-minded are not so. They don't like how it's all put together. And this verse here and that verse there and and so they're thinking right away that they they don't like it and they speak evil and they don't like it because they don't understand it. They speak evil of things which they know not. As I said, Second Peter chapter two is a similar chapter and God makes a similar statement in Second Peter 2, it says in Second Peter 2, 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And there's that speaking evil again, same word. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not reeling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Speak evil of things they understand not. Now consider what it says in Proverbs chapter 28. In Proverbs 28 and verse 5. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek Jehovah understand all things. Evil men understand not judgment, because it's spiritually discerned. Time and judgment. The wise, a wise man's heart, 
discerneth time and judgment. So God's elect understand where we're living at in the the time of the end of the world. We understand that uh, a great tribulation has come and gone. We understand it is judgment day because God has granted spiritual discernment. But evil men do not understand time, and that's why they might, yes, they, they see the things going on around them. They, they see the church that is apostate like never before in history. That's, that's troubling. They see uh, a world given over to sin like never before in history, and that's equally troubling. They see gay marriage, and they recognize that yes, God uh, did um, highlight uh, the the sin of homosexuality um, prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's troubling. But then they'll say, "Well, we can't know. We might be here fifty years, or a hundred years, or a thousand years, and they cannot know." That is true. They do not know and never will know because these things are spiritually discerned. And evil men understand not judgment. They don't understand the time of judgment, nor do they understand the nature of judgment. You know, God said this concerning the people of Judah in Jeremiah chapter 8. In verse 7, it says, Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times. Notice God is speaking of a creature, and an animal, and it knows its appointed times. And this would have been built into it and as uh, creatures tend to do what they were designed to do. And the turtle and the crane... And the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people know not the judgment of Jehovah. My people do not know. Well, that's what the church insists upon, isn't it? No man knows. They, they're teaching flat out ignorance. They're insisting upon it. We must not know, you must not know, no one must know these things. And God says here, is this a good thing he's saying of his people? He's contrasting them with storks. Even a stork, in other words, knows its appointed times. But my people know not the judgment of Jehovah. How awful it is, how terrible it is that the people of God did not know in the days of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, it, it, and what excuse did they have for not knowing that, that God was judging them, that God was giving them up um, to the Babylonians? Was it because God didn't tell them that they did not know? Jeremiah was... But as that expression goes, going blue in the face, telling them again and again and again, the Lord is wrathful with you. He's angry with you because you have been 
uh, worshiping idols and and the queen of heaven and and offering cakes to her and uh, in every pl- high place and so forth. Therefore, here's the judgment of God. And Jeremiah began telling them years before these things took place. For years they were hearing it, yet they knew not. Why didn't they know? Because, even though that was the spoken word of God, the same um, thing applied. They knew not the judgment of God because it had to be spiritually discerned. They did not have ears to hear what God was saying to them through the prophet Jeremiah, and therefore they're they're caught by surprise. And they knew not the judgment, and neither did the church of our time, as the judgment upon Judah in the Old Testament typifies the judgment on the churches, and yet God has withheld that from them. He's not giving them eyes to see, nor ears to hear, nor ability to comprehend that when we read these things, uh, and the book of Jeremiah is full of information of God judging his own people, his own corporate body of national Israel, Judah, of old, that it is actually spiritually teaching of God's judgment on the New Testament churches and congregations. You you, uh, tell them that, and it flies over their head, goes in one ear and out the other ear. They are not able to grasp it or grab a hold of it because it's spiritually discerned. You, You have to see how God wrote the Bible. You have to see the Christ spoken parables. And without a parable, he did not speak. And, and so on. And they cannot. And, and so the child of God hearing these things, seeing that God commanded go to Babylon into captivity, that is come out of Judah and, and understanding in Matthew 24, when the abomination of desolation is standing in the holy place, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. God opens the eyes of his people to spiritually discern what is being said. Oh, Judea is a type and figure of the church. And this is speaking of the great tribulation. Satan is loosed. He's in the church, in the holy place. Therefore, I must come out of the church and go to the word of God, the mountains that represent the kingdom of God and 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 so forth. And God's people came out. And and that's how God um, brought about the separation of the wheat and the tares. The wheat have spiritual discernment. The tares lack spiritual discernment. The, the wheat have the mind of Christ. The tares a natural mind. And God is in control of all that. And he knew that. And he's the one that gives his people the ability to hear his voice. So it was a very safe mechanism that God put in place to go about the business of separation of the wheat and the tares. God knew that 
that he would not leave any weeder elect within the church, uh, that he would not give the ability to hear these things so that they could respond and come out. But only those that have no ability. They heard this and then they would conclude, oh, uh, these people are heretics and and they're they're speaking awful things about the church and and because they did not understand it they would begin to speak evil of the things they understood not speak evil of a good man like Mr. Camping and and at that time the ministry of family radio and the people of God involved in these things not knowing that it came directly from God himself. And that's a dangerous thing. When you speak evil of true and right doctrine, where does that doctrine come from? Scripture with Scripture, and the Holy Ghost teaches, the Holy Spirit. And doesn't God warn about the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Blaspheming means to speak evil of. To speak evil of that which comes from God. And, and of course, the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a sin that corporate bodies commit. That the, the organization of the church, the leadership determine this is of Satan. This is heresy that the, the idea of the church age is over and we won't listen to it and, and we'll pronounce edicts and and cast out some of these people from the congregations and will warn our members don't listen to them and in so doing they sealed their own fate they they did what Israel did before them long ago and that is the church organization committed the sin the organization not the individuals in the sense that any individual potentially could have been saved if they had come out and, and placed themselves in the position where God was saving. But the organization within the corporate body of the church, there would be forgiveness no more. And never again, once God ended the church age, there is no more forgiveness within any congregation. And that, that was the characteristic of the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, let, let's go back to Jude, and uh, I spent, I think, more time on that than I was expecting. But let's go back to Jude, and it says in Jude, in verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints." to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds. And it goes on. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. And isn't God's word amazing? We don't read in the Old Testament of anything that Enoch said that I'm aware of. Yet God is aware of everything that he said. And he foretold. He spoke of the coming of the Lord with ten thousands of his saints. And that's very accurate. 
course it is, because God would have inspired Enoch in this way, since God is um, re- recalling it here. And, and that's exactly the language of uh, Zechariah. Zechariah 14, where it says in uh, verse 5, And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And Jehovah my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Jehovah shall come with the saints. The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. There's there's another uh, further confirmation uh, as, as though we needed it. We don't. God's people don't. But uh, but there are those that continually attempt to charge that Jesus isn't God. Christ comes with ten thousands of his saints. Jehovah, my God, shall come and all the saints with thee. This also helps us understand we're correct when we un- when we look at the number ten or hundred or thousand or ten thousand as a number that represents completeness of all that is in view. In this case, the saints. It it says in Jude fourteen, ten thousands of his saints, and Zechariah fourteen five says it's all the saints. And uh, we we do know the Bible indicates perhaps as many as 200 million people have become saved. They're all saints. Everyone that God has saved is made holy. That's what the word saint points to, someone without sin. Of course, uh, you know, we always have to mention this because churches today have distorted this as well as many other things and they look at the life of an individual and if that individual is said to have done some miracle or spent their life in such a holy way they canonize the person and call him a saint and it's just completely ridiculous uh, first of all someone that the church selects may not even have been a child of God, especially if they claim to have done some miracle. And, you know, the the Bible indicates that God and supernatural activity from God ceased once the Bible was completed by the end of the first century A.D. And, uh, therefore, if somebody says, well, I spoke to God or had a dream or a vision... Or, or like, um, it's claimed by someone else that they had a vision. Uh, I think there, Our Lady of Fatima or something like that. Uh, they, they make those kinds of claims. We can know absolutely it was not God communicating to anyone who makes that claim, and it's a, a lethal claim. Because the Bible says anyone adding to or subtracting from the word of God is subject to have the plagues written herein added to him or her. And uh, so in all likelihood, 
most of the saints were not even saved. Or they were involved in physical acts of mercy, involved in feeding the physical poor and clothing the physical poor, and God's people concentrate on the spiritual. Because that that's where God would have us uh, to concentrate on. And so forget the saints that some church claims are saints. Uh, In all likelihood, the vast majority of them are not even saved and therefore not saints. But everyone that God saves, even the thief on the cross who had no opportunity because he was saved at the last hour of his life to do any good works, once God saved him, He was a saint, according to the Bible. All of God's elect, the whole company of them, everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life is a saint, and Christ comes with ten thousands of his saints, all of them, according to Zechariah 14.5. And therefore, ten thousand points to the completeness of everyone that God has saved, to each one of the elect. Well, uh, you know, uh, what's interesting about this is that it speaks of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and uh, that that's interesting that God points that out. He, he doesn't say Enoch uh, prophesied of these, but God uh, specifies Enoch, the seventh, from Adam. And one thing that tells us is that it it gives us uh, permission, biblical justification, to count the position of any individual in a genealogy. In, in any place in the Bible, when we find a genealogy, the position is significant, or the position of the person in that genealogy has spiritual meaning. Because God is saying Enoch was seventh from Adam. And and God's the one who counted it out. If we go to Luke chapter 3, I'll start reading, uh, I'm going to break into this genealogy. Um, but I'll start reading in verse 34. Which was the son of Jacob? Which was the son of Isaac? Which was the son of Abraham? Which was the son of Therah? Which was the son of Nacor? Which was the son of Sarach? Which was the son of Ragu? Which was the son of Phelek? Which was the son of Heber? Which was the son of Selah? Which was the son of Canaan? Which was the son of Arphaxad? Which was the son of Shem? which was the son of Noah, which was the son of Lamech, which was the son of Methuselah, which was the son of Enoch, which was the son of Jared, which was the son of Maliel, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. And, and here we do find Enoch is listed the seventh from Adam. You have to count Adam um, inclusively. Adam is number one. And and then um, Seth would be two. Enos, three. Canaan, four. Malalil, five. 
Jared 6, Enoch 7th. He's the seventh generation from Adam. Now, uh, interestingly enough, from Enoch to Abraham uh, are 14 generations in in this genealogy. Now, this genealogy, uh, sometimes God in genealogy, um, uh, he, he contrives them. As far as we know, this genealogy uh, is uh, is not contrived. The one in Matthew is uh, contrived by God. But here, from Enoch to Abraham, Enoch is the seventh, Abraham is the 21st generation from Adam. And therefore, there's 14 generations separating Enoch and Abraham. And that's significant. Because in Matthew 1 and the genealogy we find there, it it uh, starts with Abraham. It says in verse uh, 1 of Matthew 1, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. So this genealogy starts with Abraham. And then it says in verse 17 of Matthew 1, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And uh, again here, uh, it's contrived in the sense that God is counting David twice. From Abraham to David is 14. Then he begins again at David to the carrying away of Babylon, and that's 14. But still, God is saying that from Abraham to Christ are 42 generations. 14 times 3. 42 generations. And back in Luke 3... Now we know from Enoch to Abraham are 14 generations. And uh, that would be 14 added to the 42 would be 46 or 45, depending on if we're going to count Abraham twice or not. And, and then from Adam to Enoch are seven. So that, um, that would give... Uh, well, let, let, let me do this again. From uh, Enoch to Abraham would be 14. And yet, since this is an actual or a, uh, not a contrived genealogy, let me put it that way, th- there would be 14. But Abraham is counted in Matthew 1's genealogy. So we're we're not going to count him twice. And we're going to say that instead of 56, the number is 55. Uh, or, or, um, it, <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I'm just going to lay out the number and then not worry about the numbers right now uh, as far as breakdowns or anything. But uh, from Enoch to Abraham is 14, and then from Abraham to Christ are 42, three times 14, and from Adam to Enoch are 7. So we have 56 plus 7 is 63 
generations that we could say are in view from Adam all the way to Christ, uh, and and that would be the birth of Christ, and and so covering eleven thousand and six years from creation, eleven thousand thirteen B.C. to seven B.C. We we could look at that as sixty three generations, and sixty three would break down to three times three times seven, indicating the purpose of God to come to perfection, who would be the Lord Jesus Christ, and and that that's one way of looking at it. There's others because of the way that God uh, developed the genealogy in Matthew one, but that's one way we can look at it. Well, why does God emphasize this? Why does God speak of Enoch being the seventh from Adam? Well, one possible reason, and and this is actually a likely reason, that God speaks of uh, Enoch in this way is uh, because of Noah. We, We know that Adam was created... And then God commanded Adam to uh, multiply and and to replenish the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, for, for several thousand years, the world continued normally, yet God, in the days of Noah, he saw the evil of man's heart, and it was only continual wickedness. God saw the evil that man was involved in, and he determined to destroy man that he had made with a flood. But he spared Noah and Noah's sons and and Noah's wife and his sons' wives, eight souls. And they came out of the ark, and then God said to them in Genesis chapter 9 in verse 1 and God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea and to your hand are they delivered it's very similar language, especially the command, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth that was given to Adam. And we can see why, because they were the only ones alive. And and just as God started with Adam in the beginning to populate the world, now he had he was starting over with Noah and his family. Therefore, in a way, Noah... And and uh, his family coming off the ark are parallel to Adam and the 
uh, original creation. In a sense, there's no one else in the world. There, there's no one else uh, anywhere on earth. It is only them, and they must procreate, they must be fruitful and multiply and so forth. Well, and what else do we know about Noah? That God said to Noah, yet seven days, earlier in the timeline before the flood came, yet seven days and I will destroy the earth. And we've seen from the Bible, Second Peter chapter 3, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Seven thousand years. Thousand pointing to completeness. It'll be the complete perfection of God. This is all the time mankind will have in order to enter into the ark of Christ into salvation and to experience the safety and security of um, that salvation that God works out in his people 7,000 years and then 7,000 years later we know to the equivalent day on May 21, 2011 which was 7,000 years from the date the flood began back in 4990 B.C. God brought about the end of the Great Tribulation, and he shut the door of heaven as he um, began judgment on the world. 7,000 years to the equivalent day in the time of Noah. And it, it would strongly appear that this is in view with Enoch's declaration Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. The, the seventh from the time when Noah was in the same situation as Adam, seven thousand years later, is in all likelihood what's in view. But why Enoch? Why is God using Enoch to make this statement. Why not uh, some other man? Why not someone else that he's written more about? We don't know hardly anything about Enoch. Why does God pick Enoch? Well, one reason is because the Lord has opened up the biblical calendar of history. We can know when Enoch was born. Enoch was born in the year 7106. 7106, he was that seventh generation from Adam. And the year 7106 fits very well with the year 1994. If if you add 7106 plus 1994, you get 9100 calendar years. And 9100 breaks down to seven times 13 times 100, which would be 10 times 10. So again, the number 7 pointing to perfection, 13 at the end of the world, and 10 to completeness. It will be the complete perfection of God's plan at the time of the end. And in 1994, that was the year in the midst of, of the Great Tribulation, 
that God began to pour out the latter rain and and uh, to save that great multitude that would fill up the house or complete the house of God, that spiritual house that the Lord Jesus Christ had been building all through history, he himself being the chief cornerstone, the rock upon which it was built, and now in 1994 would be the final phase of building the house of God. And I'm mentioning the house because the name Enoch, the the um, not the Greek so much as the Greek is just um, coming from the Hebrew. We read of Enoch in the Old Testament, and the Hebrew word for Enoch is a word that is derived uh, from the uh, word that's translated as uh, dedicate or dedication and and train uh, one time. Uh, Enoch is Strong's number 2585, and the word it comes from is Strong's number 2596. 2596 is a Hebrew word that's only found five times. It's found twice in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and in verse 5 where where it says, And the officer shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that is that hath built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. The word dedicate twice here is is a word that Enoch comes from. It's also used twice in association with the house of God that uh, the Lord had Solomon build in First Kings eight and in verse sixty three. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto Jehovah two and twenty thousand oxen and a hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of Jehovah. In Second Chronicles 7, verse 5, it, it's the uh, parallel um, chapter to that. It says, And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of twenty and two thousand oxen and a hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And that would have been during the Feast of of Tabernacles. The house of God completed. The finished house was dedicated. So four times out of five, this Hebrew word relates to the, the house, the house of God. As when we uh, look at Deuteronomy 20 verse 5 spiritually, that reference to a man dedicating his house is also pointing to God dedicating his spiritual house. And the fifth place is, uh, this word is found is in Proverbs 22 and verse 6, and here it's translated train up. It, it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Dedicate a child in the way he should go. 
So Enoch really represents his name, points to, we would say, the dedicated one. He he is dedication. Or, in, in other words, Enoch is a, a figure of God's elect that are all part of the dedicated house of God, the, the spiritual house that uh uh, the Bible says in Hebrews 3, whose house are we? And and so Enoch um, is prophesying uh, the seventh from Adam of the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints. And when does the Lord come? As soon as the spiritual house of God was complete. And again, on May 21, 2011, God completed his salvation program. He saved the last of the elect, the house built up of living stones of everyone God has saved, was completed, and now comes the dedication after the house is completed during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so uh, uh, I think all these things are in view and would give the reason why God is um, or, or making reference to Enoch of all people. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, relates to the 7,000 years from Noah in the position of Adam after the flood and uh, and then the judgment that comes after God has completed the building up of his spiritual house, the body of believers. Well, there were other things I wanted to get into, uh, especially uh, the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. And we're we're just not going to have time uh, to look at that in, in this study. So um, we're, we're going to bring the study to a close at this point. Maybe we'll get into this again. I'm not sure, but... Uh, we'll have to end here. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship Sunday Bible Study. For more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.